You guys, it's the first episode of season three, and I am so excited to bring you an interview to kick things off right. Before we get to that, though, I just wanted to say how good it feels to be back. Sometimes a small break can add perspective and renew vision, but it also means that long list of to-dos gets done, and that helps to free up brain space for all the good things to grow. So, welcome back to Poet Kind Podcast. It's September 4, 2019, and on today's show, I'm so excited, we're chatting with Carlos Andres Gomez. Carlos is an award-winning poet, writer, actor, and speaker. His most recent work, Ijito, which we're going to talk about today, won the 2018 Broken River Prize. He has also been the recipient of several prestigious poetry awards, the 2018 Atlanta Review International Poetry Prize, 2019 Sandy Crimmins National Prize for Poetry, 2019 Fisher National Poetry Prize, to name just a few. And he has received fellowships from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, Voices of Our Nation Arts Foundation, and the Jerome Foundation. He is widely published and has starred in HBO's Deaf Poetry Jam, Spike Lee's Inside Man. He has also partnered with John Legend for Senior Orientation, an anti-bullying program that champions inclusive masculinity in high schools. This is just the tip of the iceberg for his accomplishments. I'll include additional information at the end of our interview so people can find you. But for now, welcome, Carlos. It is a pleasure and an honor to have you join me today. Thank you so much for having me, Susan. It's great to be chatting with you. Yeah, it, it's pretty exciting. I was, um, I hadn't heard of this particular book before, I'm ashamed to admit. Um, and then it was brought up to me. And once I was looking at it, I was just blown away. So I am remarkably grateful to you uh, for spending a little time to talk with us about your work, uh, who you are, what you do about your writing. So this is going to be exciting. I'm, I'm very honored. Thank you so much for taking time with the book and for chatting. I'm excited to, to hear whatever questions or thoughts you might have. This, yeah. is, this is my favorite. Okay, your book, um, your most recent book, you've written several now, haven't you? You wrote... Um, yeah, memoir and then this book. Yeah. And this is called, I'm going to make sure I say it properly, Hejito? Very close. Uh, Ijito. Ijito. Okay. Um, sorry to sorry to flood no, that. No, you were you were very close. You're right there. Um, I I love what the word itself means, um, and it means young man or small boy. Is that correct? Yeah, it's basically like the the diminutive endearment form uh, for boy, or it can be for child in Spanish. Okay. Um, I'm I'm Colombian, so. The big joke in Spanish is all uh, Colombians make everything cute and endearing because we put ito and ito on everything. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, if you if you know any Colombians and you hear them say speak Spanish, there will be a lot of itos and itas mixed in. Okay, okay. <laughs> well, what I was struck with is one, you're a phenomenal storyteller. Each one of these pieces was so. Um, uh, in my mind, visually evocative, wow. and I was I was put in the middle of a story right away. So in a place that one I'm unfamiliar with, two you get to the point, but you um, you take these 
uh, uncomfortable situations that that maybe the character and it's probably the, not the right term, but the person you're writing about or you uncomfortable, but you you make it so human and so attainable as the reader. And um, so each one is like an individual meal. I couldn't, you know, some books you can sit down and you can read through and you can go, okay, I kind of get the gist. This is great. This is great. I'd read it and it's like, oh no, I have to go back and read this again. Wow. Oh, there's so, so many layers in it, but just so well-crafted. Thank you. Um, so. Do you mind sharing a little bit about your motivations behind writing Ahito and, and, um, maybe just little stories from sure from the writing i suppose sure sure i mean you know the, the genesis of the entire project basically was the um the summer of, of 2014 when uh my partner and i were were trying to get pregnant and and we've been thinking about having children but then we were you know that summer we were trying to get pregnant and for those i mean i think uh i guess the last two years for for many of us feel like maybe a, a couple centuries mm, <laughs> the yeah. last few years are such a blur at this point to try to think of even five years ago is I think it's difficult even for me time seems like it's getting it's so overwhelming these days it's hard to have a, a, a sense yeah. of um, but in the summer of 2014 there were um, a litany of these very high profile very very highly publicized incidents in which there was uh, a white police officer um, who killed a black person. And uh, my, my partner is black. And so I'd already been thinking for many years about what it would mean. I mean, thinking about entering parenthood, I think, is is overwhelming and anxiety-inducing enough. Yeah. And, and there, you're a grandparent. Uh, uh, you know, you know intimately those those fears and all those different emotions that accompany the consideration of entering parenthood but to think about that being amplified through that not just the history of the united states which is which is um so much of the history of the united states is in many ways um inextricable from the the subjugation and the destruction of black lives and black lives and um, black humanity. But to think about me entering parenthood, and I'm not black, and I'm not of the African diaspora, and to think about not just the responsibilities of parenthood um, that any parent feels when they're thinking about becoming a parent, but to think about what are the responsibilities that I have um, considering raising a black child in America. And to me, that, that question is, cannot be separated from me considering the ways that I am complicit with the ideologies, with the systems, with the structures that enable that pervasive violence against black people, um, the ways that I am complicit with white supremacy, the ways that I'm complicit with these things that horrify me but are inherently ingrained and socialized into my body and into my psyche. And um, so about a week and a half after we had started to try to get pregnant, uh, there um, an NYPD officer by the name of Daniel Pantaleo um, strangled to death a father of six on um, mm -hmm. Staten Island mm -hmm. by the name of uh, Eric Garner. And uh, 
by placing an illegal chokehold on him. And um, a month after we started trying to get pregnant, uh, there was an 18-year-old young man in Ferguson, Missouri named Michael Brown um, who was killed by Darren Wilson in Ferguson, Missouri. And his body was left in the street for about four hours before anybody took him, took it away. Um, that fall, shortly after we found out um, we were we were pregnant, there was you know a whole a whole litany of other of other deaths. I mean, uh, a Kai Gurley, um, he was a 28 year old man who was killed, and the officer said his his weapon accidentally discharged and he was unarmed just in his building. Uh, they're, they're just so many. I could just keep going, unfortunately. And um, a lot of these are very public. A lot of them um, were things that you, you, you couldn't get away from. I mean, it was everywhere. It was on social media. It was in the news. Um, and in in almost every single one of these incidences, there was no accountability for the police officer, right? Um, you know, Daniel Pantaleo was just fired from the NYPD, but there were no, there were no criminal charges against him. Um, and Eric Garner was, you know, was, was accused of selling black market cigarettes, he had loose cigarettes as the, as we say in New York. Um, so I think that, that, that origin story for this, for this book is really, really important to understanding the, I guess the primary frame through which this entire book took, took shape. Uh, there's a lot of other themes of course in the book, you know, I'm always thinking about masculinity and thinking about other identities that intersect and collide, um, with, uh, with masculinity, you know, race, ethnicity, sexuality, other things. But, but, uh, you know, I think a lot of the book is thinking about all these different stories that explain, um, the point at which I was entering parenthood and also, uh, the ways in which my personal story intersects with other people's stories, um, mm -hmm. that I will never meet, you know, uh, and thinking about, I think oftentimes we think of ourselves as having so much distance from what's happening in the news or what's happening abroad or what's happening even across the street from our, from where we live. And I think, I hope that this book, um, closes the distance and makes us recognize, um, the proximity, the intimacy there and the relevance and the amplified stakes that each, each one of us carries in our bodies when we walk out into the world. And so, you know, you just say the poem was like a feel poem threw you into a story and made you feel it in the fullness of its humanity. I mean, that's, that was my hope, you know, that, that makes me feel, um, that that's what I was, was very much attempting, attempting to do. Well, I think you did it very well. And it, as you were speaking, and I'm trying to think, um, my book is on the Kindle and it doesn't, it doesn't display like the regular book, but I I'm trying to get back to it. The sure. first poem in the book, and I'm trying to find what it is. Uh, um, uh, Ihito? Or the, yeah, well, there's, there's like the prologue poem, which is Ihito, and then there's uh, yeah. the one after okay. that poem about death ending with reincarnation. Okay. Um, the Ihito, it has to do with, now this is, I want to make sure I get it correctly. Sure, sure. You're seeing a reflection, but you're seeing yourself in the reflection. Is that correct? Yes. Um, so basically, it, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it serves as an overlay for what you're seeing in some ways. And so I, I think how you describe, you know, what you were just talking about, that this poem immediately captured so much of um, what was going to be found in the rest of the book. 
you're seeing your own visage, your own reflection against the backdrop of everything that's out there yes. and how it intersects. Um, so, it, you know, for me, as soon as I read that, I was just, it set the stage for everything. It was just perfect. So, Thank you. Um, you talk a lot about family and after your explanation, that makes sense. And what that looks like, um, a parent-child relationship, and then the child-parent relationship, you look at it from both perspectives um, and how that, um, how that blends as you get older. And, um, you know, did you base some of this on your own family experience? Um, any specific stories or if that's, you know, if you don't mind me asking. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, 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 um, I'm pretty, I'm pretty candid and straightforward. I mean, for those, for those listeners who, who read my memoir, I mean, I think, um, obviously there are so many, uh, there are so many different, I guess, there are so many different dimensions and I would say layers to the persona of the narrator in every poem. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, it's, it's a bit reductive to say that every poem is just me telling a story about myself, but also (laughs) I think all of the work is deeply, deeply rooted in autobiography. But, um, you know, I think the idea is I'm curating and reckoning with, the personal narratives that I see having profound echo points far beyond my personal microcosm. Mm. Right. So I think definitely I am, you know, for those who read the me- my memoir, I know that there are stories in poems that they will recognize that were touched on in the memoir. Uh, so there, there is a lot where I'm beginning with autobiography with a lot of these poems and the way that they are constructed and the way that, and the, and the place where they end or the place where the poem arrives, um, has leapt far beyond the autobiographical narrative mm-hmm. or taking terms that are unexpected. But I think, uh, absolutely the stories that reckon with family, uh, you know, and one of my, uh, meditation points that I've obsessively been excavating for 20 years since I started writing poetry has been my relationship with my father and also how that informs my approach, anxieties, aspirations, uh, fears, being a father now myself to two children. Yeah. Thinking about the, you know, I think what we inherit, um, uh, whether or not by choice, often not by choice from our parents and from our childhoods (laughs) as and wanting to, to break certain cycles or to not replicate certain things in the legacy that I'm trying to build this new legacy with my family and my children now. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I noticed about the, what seemed like the more personal, um, poems was that and well and I guess across the board for all your poems they can be a quite hard-edged but they are done with with such a tenderness and an attendance to truth um 
it's just it's an interesting juxtaposition that you're able to to pull off in such a, a lovely way. Um, sometimes poetry that deal with personal family histories can um, leave you more as an observer. Sure, sure. Um, and I found that your poetry helped me see through different eyes. Wow. And so that was that was one of the things I really really liked about um, some of your pieces. And then the other thing too was, uh, and I, I just had just taken some notes. You talk about, you know, your perspective, both as a parent and child and, and that sort of thing, you know, talking about the multiplicity of self and how you've put, you expand on that with, you know, just your, those personal poems, but then the larger social uh, commentary. And that is, um, I think that takes a special talent to be able to graft someone into that space. And I think you've done a great job. Um, and then I, moments, you talk about moments and um, how, how if one thing was different, how the story might've evolved a different way. If just well, one strand of the DNA of that particular moment had shifted. Um, and I, I, those were some of the most profound um, pieces for me when I was reading them because it it kind of grabs you on the inside and shakes you around a little bit and sure. then makes you think and it's like you know isn't that so true a single just a step to one side might mean the difference in yes. an entire story yes yes yeah there, so. there are definitely those stories in the book I mean and the, and like I said those are those are real experiences from my life, uh, whether it's the story that I talk about in, in What Happened, which is a real incident that happened with my best friend in, in Nashville, and um, or the story in Before the Last Shot, where um, we came very close, you know, you know, to being hit by gunfire in Brooklyn. My my now wife and my brother and sister, my now brother and sister-in-law, and. You know, in Bed-Stuy um, a number of years back. And so, you know, I think a lot of the stories are, you know, I think are also, also reflecting too. I mean, I know the book ends, you know, I spent a number of years visiting Rikers Island in New York, which is a uh, very infamous uh, jail. Um, yeah. Actually the largest penal colony in the world. There are I think like 17 or 18,000 people incarcerated on Rikers Island, mm -hmm. island in, um, in between the Bronx and Queens. And, uh, you know, I think thinking about too, about how I think about so many things that I've experienced in my life, that if I'd taken a step to the left or a step to the right or something had been, been, been different, um, I very easily could have been one, one of the young men um, on Rikers Island. And so I think a lot of the stories, like you said, I think when you're saying you felt that, you know, you, you, you were seeing it through the eyes of this narrator, um, I think when I think about the writing that most compels and most and most reframes what is happening inside of me, and to me that's the first step towards the greater shifts out in the world. I think it's the writing that makes me feel makes me feel like that. Yeah. So that's always the hope and the goal. Yeah. Now, do you have you know I I don't know poetry becomes almost like your children in a way. Do you have a Favorite? <laughs> do you have a favorite child in your book? <laughs> wow, I, um, I don't know if I do. I mean, I, I um, 
I think it's there, there's there there are so many poems in this book that are that have such high stakes, and I mean every poem in here is deeply personal. So, oh, absolutely. Um, and, and a lot of the poems are also like very painful and very difficult for me too. So it's there's there's a lot I think um, that's that's interwoven throughout the book. It's such a sometimes I wish I <laughs> it's kind of the point, but it's also you know it's hard for me to step back and look at the poems and not, and in some way separate them from the deeply personal histories from which they emerged. I don't know if I have, a, I don't know if I have a, um, I don't know if I have a favorite poem. I, I think it's, it's funny too, because some of the poems, there, there are poems in the book. I mean, there's one poem I wrote in, in seven minutes and there's one poem that, or a couple poems that took me almost four years to write. So yeah. there's something in that. <laughs> I think writers can maybe also, or particularly poets can, can relate to this. You know, I mean, my process is generally pretty slow, but, you know, occasionally you'll have something where you, you know, you go to the field as my, as my uh, mentor, Cedell Young, you know, would say, you go to the field and you, you get struck by lightning and it's the one out of a million, but generally you just are there, you know, sweeping in front of the temple each day, <laughs> hoping for something to, for something to, to come visit you, you know, the muse to come visit. But, you know, so I think there's, there's, there's tremendous contrast, I think, across the pieces in both the process, but in terms of my relationship to them, you know, there's definitely, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I have, I don't know if I have a favorite poem. I mean, they're all, each one of them has a deeply personal connection to me and to my story. So it's, uh, my relationship with each is very different. Yeah. Um, well, here's the here's the part where I kind of put you on the spot. Would sure. you be comfortable sharing a piece? Absolutely, absolutely. And I'd leave that to your discretion, but go ahead and. A absolutely. Um, I, I normally wouldn't give much of an intro, but I'll just give a small a small intro that I think okay. might frame this a little bit. Uh, when I was on the on the book tour for my memoir, Man Up Reimagining Modern Manhood. The, the publisher, they, they send you out with, you know, like with these, they call, they're called media escorts. So they're like, you know, a person who takes you around to do the book release, to do the interviews, whatever else. Um, and, uh, and Penguin was super nice to get me this very nice person taking her when I was out in Chicago on the tour. And it was funny because she, she was a novelist. She was a fiction writer. And we were talking. She was saying how um, we were talking about reviews and everything else. And she was saying how... Um, she had a friend who was a novelist who, who'd done very well and was saying that when she got down about, you know, someone being able to discard years of your life that you put into this creative process, she said that uh, she would read one star reviews of the greatest books ever written. <laughs> so well, I know exactly which poem you're going <laughs> to. Which I think is very funny. And so like, I, and so just out of that night when I was lonely and at my hotel, I kind of, uh, I said, oh, I'm going to look up, what I think is the greatest book ever written, um, which is 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. I say, you know, tied with Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. And I said, I'm going to look up that book and just see and just, you know, compare, you know, just see what it's, what's like, look at one star reviews. And I was looking at its average rating on Amazon um, and just sort of chuckling. And then I said, I'm going to look up the average rating of a book that um, lives in infamy for a lot of different reasons. And I was shocked to find that its average review was actually higher 
than what I thought was the greatest book I've, what I think and I think some other, many others believe is the greatest book ever written. So, um, and I thought that that was, told me something about the world in which we live. And so I'm going to read that poem right now. And uh, the title is pretty self-explanatory beyond that. Mein Kampf has better reviews than 100 years of solitude on Amazon. I found out today at the exact moment a sound like drowning or heaving took me and my ears hostage as a kerfuffle of futile scrapping tried desperately to keep a bird atop a ledge so as not to tumble from my fifth floor air conditioning. I could tell you nature is breathtaking or carefully describe how the scent of my daughter's sweat-dampened scalp just after she's woken and taken that long drawl of a yawn is still cradled by the pillow on my lap where her neck was resting just 16 minutes ago. But what would that prove? Once, I watched a slight, nervous man in a starched, pressed uniform empty a flurry of baton hits on the limp skull of a homeless man for snatching a rich woman's purse. Watching, I felt freed of my innocence. All seven and a half years of my life seemed to evaporate into the thick summer air of Central Park. It was 1989. And I knew definitively for the first time how easily I could kill or be killed. That's one of those pieces that like grabs you on the inside because you you juxtapose these images so seamlessly across each other. But the fact that um, what it's titled and how that speaks to the condition of society, mm. where our values lie, you speak of your personal values there, but, you know, look what book has the better rating yeah. in the world. And uh, that's just, just powerfully done. Thank you for sharing that one. Thank I'm you pleasant. very much. Um, I, I jumped right into the interview asking you questions about the book, and I, I leapfrogged right over the basics of, you know, tell me a little bit more about yourself. When did poetry become this drive for you? And yeah, education, anything you want to share? Sure, sure. Um, I, I, was a, I was a delayed reader. I learned to read very late. Um, I, I grew up kind of bouncing all over the the world. My, uh, my dad worked for the United Nations. So I moved 12 times before I graduated high school. I lived in four countries. I was juggling a lot of different languages. So it took me a while to learn how to speak English. Spanish, Spanish and Portuguese were the first languages I learned. And then English was the third. And then I learned in the British system, which, which I don't know if it still is, but at that time it was all based around word memorization instead of phonetics. So as you can imagine, I, I mean, I'm sure I have learning differences as well. I'm not entirely sure, but 
word memorization with a with a third language. I'm sure you can imagine it was a, a big struggle learning how to read. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I felt a lot of anxiety about just the the constant you know literacy in general. <laughs> Libraries would make me very nervous and very sweaty growing up. <laughs> so um, it wasn't until I was 17 that I really fell in love with poetry and. Uh, uh, the poet Martina Espada visited my high school when I was 17, and he read from his book, Imagine the Eagles of Bread, and that was the first time I heard poetry that felt like it was literally reaching its hand inside of me and, and pulling me from my seat. And uh, and, I, and I've been a poet since then. That was 20 years ago now, um, a little more than 20 years ago. And so, um, which made it actually very special, Martin wrote the introduction for this book. Uh, which was very, which was sort of things coming beautifully full circle there. Uh, and, but, but I think a lot of the literature that I've, I've since returned to and I appreciate, but I felt, um, I felt pretty alienated by a lot of the canonical poets that I studied growing up in, in public school. And I think the, a lot of, you know, a lot of the teach, the English teachers I had didn't do a great job of contextualizing that work in a way that I could receive it. I think in, in, in the way that I, I receive a lot of it now. Uh, and, and a lot of the writers that I think more, more may have more easily accessed me or more readily resonated with me, um, I didn't even know they existed until I, until I encountered Martinez Fada's work, which led me to a, a number of other writers. But so, so yeah, so I mean, I guess it's just been a sort of a long, strange journey. Um, I've been a, I've been a, a multi-hyphenate creative <laughs> full-time artist for, for 14 years and um, done things on a lot of different creative disciplines, which I know is very, is very different from most authors, I, I suppose. And I know that's changing. There are a lot of, you know, writers now who operate in a lot of different mediums, but I think over time, that's something that people don't usually see. And uh, so, yeah, this, this, this book is it's kind of very long overdue. I, I got a, an MFA from Warren Wilson, uh, graduated last January. Um, okay. and so, yeah, so it's, it's been this kind of very strange journey. Uh, poetry has definitely been a centering, uh, force and obsession for the last 20 years, but this is the first poetry project I've released. So it's, it's terrifying and thrilling and overwhelming and all the emotions at the same time, as you can imagine. Yeah. yeah. Well, I love that you come from, um, a varied background and how it got you to where you are. I think that informs your work as well, but um, on a more selfish note, it validates the fact that, you know, my ups and downs, my background, and I think a lot of people will relate to that, Yes. you know, d brought me to poetry in a very roundabout way, non-traditional. Yeah. And so, um, you know, you hear people say, well, you know, I became a poet later in life or, you know, I was this or that or the other thing. I know accountants that are poets, you know, and they're like, yes. but it, that doesn't, it doesn't um, matter. It just makes it richer, I think. So it's fun to hear that how you came, how you came to it. And I like that multi-hyphenated yeah. <laughs> background. I, I mean, I, you know, I think too, you know, I, I, um, the, the sort of, when I think of a place that I most associate with my poetic journey, it would be the the New York Poets Cafe in uh, in New York on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Um, and you know, for those who, who may not be familiar with it, I mean, it's this legendary space 
artistic hub in New York that has been a, a, a place that's provided a platform for from all different types of incredible writers, performers, artists. And, it's, you know, for me, it's a it's a very it's a very democratic place. It's a place of the people. It's a place for the people. It's a place that is open to anyone. It's a place that provides an outlet and a space for anyone. And that's very much, I think, aligned with my perspective and my approach to poetry is, you know, I, 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 I want to tell stories that people can, can see themselves in, even if it's a story that may feel foreign to them. I want them to feel invited into that story. And um, I'm definitely not somebody who, you know, I, I didn't come from a, from a background in terms of my own journey with literacy where I believe in, um, I believe in elitist silos that, that keep most people out, you know, and that's really the hope of this book too, is I wanted to make an original contribution to, to the poetic conversation in a way where a lot of people can feel validated and feel themselves seen and feel their stories seen and, and have it not be another sort of esoteric, um, brick in that, in that Ivy tower that keeps people out. So, so here, hearing a little bit about your journey, I, I, that really, that deeply resonates with me. I think, um, I think more people who right now I've felt invited into being poets and listening to poetry and receiving poetry. I think more of us have stories like that than, you know, we've been writing than people who say they've been writing since they were four months old. <laughs> Iowa writers workshop and, you know, won the Pulitzer. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there you go. Although I wouldn't mind saying I that. Wouldn't that either. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> Oh, you mentioned in our conversation a couple times that you've worked with mentors and you have people who have inspired you. What advice would you pass on to someone who is either just getting started in poetry or who's been doing it but wants to go that next place with it? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I think to me, community and mentorship is is vital for the creative process. I, I can't imagine a creative process without that. I know it's something that a lot of people um, that I think are my sort of like generational peers, we talk about a lot. And I think it's because a lot of us came, you know, sort of entered poetry in spaces where we were sharing poems aloud with other poets. Um, I've never thought of writing as a solitary endeavor. I know that Obviously, we're drafting and the generative process can quite literally be, not always though, for some of us, can be a process of us writing by ourselves. But I've always thought of the, even the generative process as something that I'm going to take somewhere and share it publicly in a, in a, in a space in which I will receive feedback immediately. Even if people don't verbally tell me what they think of the piece, I'll be able to tell if something is working in a public space. I mean, I'm saying in New York, in New York you, you can feel it or even audibly find out immediately if something's working or not. Yeah. And I think that, that even before I did my MFA, I had these incredible mentors and peers and people I looked up to that gave me critical feedback and that informed my own growth and evolution as a writer. Um, and so I would, I would go to the New Reading Quotes Cafe or I'd go to Bar 13 or I'd go to the Bowery Poetry Club. And I was, you know, I, I grew up around, you know, I was there with, you know, like, Patrick Rosal and, and Rachel McKibbins and Patricia Smith and all these incredible writers and they would give me feedback and they would challenge me and they would force me to reconsider what I wrote and they'd ask me to write something new the next week and 
there was there was an era where I would you know I'd be bringing a new poem every Monday night to Bar Thirteen or every other Wednesday to the New Year's mm. Cafe, and I think that kind of um, that that sort of vibrant communal um, accountability that I think I was I was allowed to be a part of in the New York literary scene. I mean, to me, that was. I, you know, I got an MFA, but I think that was the real MFA. <laughs> you know, I I, I, uh, I was at the Decatur Book Festival over the weekend, and um, one of the people who I saw at Bar 13 since he was 18 years old was uh, was Ocean Vong, who uh, mm. novel um, On Earth Were Briefly Gorgeous and yeah. the collection Nice Guy with Exit Wounds. Um, you know, he's probably going to win the Pulitzer for his novel, and I, he deserves it. Um, but I, you know, I ran into him on the street. We were talking. I gave him a big hug. And we were and we were talking about, as he called it, you know, church, you know, he said, and he said his, his MFA, he got an MFA at NYU, but we were talking about, you know, our real MFAs, the first ones we got w- was at Bar 13. And just thinking about those times where, you know, every Monday there were, you know, 80, 90, 100 people, you know, supportive, but also critical and challenging and, and holding you accountable to your gifts and to, to the demands of this work and the, the sacred responsibility of being a writer and saying, we want new work. We want we want work that is uncompromising. We want work that doesn't take the shortcut. We want work that pushes us and challenges us. And uh, you know, I, I'm forever grateful for that. And I and I think that that's my ultimate advice for writers is, you know, if you want to write in a journal and not share it with anybody, of course that's your right. But for me, if you ever have the desire to have it be something that's received by people outside of yourself. Find a community, and a community can be be two other writers, yeah, uh, that are as supportive as they are challenging, and get in the process of generating new work constantly, and finding ways to share it. Whether it's a it's a it's a reading group, or a or a micro salon with two other writers that that, that you meet up every Sunday at your local coffee shop, or maybe it's you find a forum, whether it's an open mic or poetry slam or whatever, where you can constantly share your new work um there's nothing like i know for me like when your ego and your your vanity is at stake <laughs> and there are a bunch of strangers in front of you and it, it, it demands that you take the, the editing and revision process quite differently i think when you yeah. know that you're going to step up in front of this room of people and have to read this this thing you've created and, and also too you oftentimes you find that immediately if you know, the first eight lines are just you clearing your throat, or if the last four <laughs> lines are you explaining something you didn't need, or if this line break works or not, you, you'll find out, I think, rather quickly. So I, yeah. I think that's the biggest thing, to be in community and to share constantly and to be generating new work in a way where it's where you can't be precious about it, but you got to yeah. create, create, and then through the revision and editing process, that's how you're going to through that process writing, that's how the pieces will find their way to you and they will find the shape that they need to take. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Thank you so much. Um, Before I take up too much more of your morning, I want to ask you to let our listeners know where they can find you. Absolutely. Um, Like social media, you know, maybe if you've got, you said you've got a book tour starting yes a few places they might be able to find you that sort of thing absolutely absolutely um so yeah you can actually i mean if you want to find out more information on the book get the book see where i'm going to be for the book tour find out more info about me you can they can find it all through my website and also my okay. social media my website is really easy it's just 
carloslive.com. Carlos, like the really easy to spell Spanish name, even if you're as bad of a speller as I am. <laughs> live, like what happened right now, listening to yeah. this live, even though it's probably recorded not live. Yeah. <laughs> One word together, carloslive.com. And uh, on, on Twitter and, and Instagram, it's just at Carlos AG Live. So at Carlos A is on the best, G is in Gomez Live at Carlos AG Live on Instagram and Twitter. And um, if, if they go to my website, you just click on the, it has a thing for the for the book tour on there on the opening splash page that comes up. Um, I'm going to be at uh, Greenlight for the big release in Brooklyn uh, this Thursday evening. I'll be in Providence on Saturday, uh, Cambridge, Boston on Monday at Harvard Bookstore, and then uh, Philly on Tuesday. And then I go on to a bunch of other cities. But um, yeah, I'd love to, to see anybody who wants to come out. You can get a signed copy of the book and I'm in conversation with some really incredible thinkers and writers for, for each of the shows. So um, this is honestly one of the most exciting things for me too, is just to hear, like even hearing, you know, hearing your thoughts on the book and, and hearing the impressions people have, because there's always um, different things that I think strike a, a person who's right. an audience member or reader. And it's always intriguing for me to see the points of resonance and also the ways that that can differ from reader to reader. That's really, uh, fascinating for me and also teaches me a lot about my own work and about my own process and it informs the way I think my writing will grow going forward yeah yeah well thank you so much it has been I've had so much fun talking to you it was an absolute delight and a real honor and I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today my pleasure thank you so much for just just your thoughtfulness and and how deeply you took in the work and just for taking time with the book it, it means everything I mean I'll just say this, any writer knows the only reason any of our writing lives are possible is because of, you know, podcast hosts like you, because <laughs> it's like you, because of, you know, someone with your editorial eye for your listeners. I'm just incredibly um, humbled and grateful. I just want to say thank you. Oh, thanks, Carlos. Make sure you visit his website. Again, that's carloslive.com and follow the links to see him perform his work. His performance of What's Genocide on YouTube will floor you. Don't forget, follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Carlos AG Live and check out where he'll be speaking for his book tour beginning tomorrow. And if you're lucky, he'll be somewhere near you. And lastly, grab a copy of Ejido while you're at it. You won't regret it. That's it for today. I cannot think of a better way to begin this new season. What a gift to be able to sit down for a great conversation, to learn from someone new, to listen to a voice of change. I will always believe we are better together. We can help each other, build each other up. Until next time, find PoetKind on Instagram and Twitter at PoetKindPodcast. You can email me at PoetKindPodcast at gmail.com. And remember, give PoetKind some love by leaving a review on your favorite listening platform. This is the best way you can support us and help PK get noticed. Take care, and let's continue to compare notes, not each other. Bring the gifts you alone have to the table, and let's make this world a better place. <laughs>